Welcome to the Evolution of Capitalism podcast. My name is Marte Rigo of Yale and U.S. College, and I have the pleasure to talk to Shannon Monaghan today. Shannon and I actually met in the archives in Strasbourg once it was still located in this historic German, pretty German building, right? Built mm-hmm. around 1900 as we were both researching uh, the First World War and its aftermath in Alsace-Lorraine. And Shannon's book just came out this year, 2018, with the title Protecting Democracy from Dissent, Population Engineering in Western Europe, 1918 to 1926. So Shannon, just to start with, could you talk a few, in a few minutes about the main arguments of your new book, which is, by the way, very well written. Everybody should buy it and read it. Shannon teaches at Harvard College, so I highly recommend it. Go ahead. So, thank you so much for that and for having me. So, uh, the overall argument of the book is that in the immediate aftermath of the First World War, you have several of these classic Western European democracies, which popularly we often think of as very homogenous nation states, uh, by which I'm tracking Ireland and France and Italy, uh, actually engaging in what I call population engineering, in order to support what they consider to be their democratic principles. So there are obviously a couple of surprises there, the idea that you would have um, A, significant minority populations in these places, uh, and B, that they would be engaging in something like population engineering. And by population engineering, I mean not eugenics. Uh, So we're not talking about anything biological. I'm talking about the treatment of minority populations, either by trying to remove them from a particular state or geography, um, trying to nationalize them or re-educate them to essentially remove their culture or their language, um, or failing that, essentially uh, abrogating enough of their civil rights that they no longer seem to be operating as a minority bloc to the majority. Um, And so my argument is that this happens for, ironically, what seem to be the best of reasons, um, and that is the idea of protecting democracy itself. So let me explain a little bit about how that happens, and then I'll briefly explain some of the case studies I'm working with, and we can go from there. So my argument is that this idea of population engineering makes sense to the leaders of these countries in the aftermath of the war because as the war goes on and as President Wilson develops his 14 points and the Paris Peace Conference, the Treaty of Versailles, there's an argument that democracy is going to prevent Europe from engaging in this kind of suicidal slaughter again. And there's an argument that it's these old empires in Europe, particularly the Habsburg Empire and different places in Eastern Europe that have all these minorities, that this war starts in the powder keg of the Balkans, and if you simply had um, better you know, allocation of borders, essentially, the idea of national self-determination, um, that you wouldn't have these kind of conflicts. So you simultaneously have Wilson saying, this is you know, a war to make the world safer democracy type of argument, that democracy is going to save us, while also simultaneously talking about national self-determination. So that leaves us with two really weird com- uh, combined ideas. Um, one is democracy based in, in liberalism, so something based on individual rights. And the other is this idea of national self-determination, which is essentially nationalism, which is based in group rights. My argument is that uh, those two things combine quite poorly. 
and awkwardly in the aftermath of the war uh, and essentially provide this unstable scenario in which it starts to make sense to some of these governments to start choosing who their people are. So in a, this is also a period in which you have rising mass participation in these democracies, which we often forget we don't have universal suffrage in many of these places before the war. Um, so as people get more involved in choosing their governments, in other words, governments start to get more involved in choosing their people. So that's the theoretical argument. Would it make sense to explain some of the places I'm talking about? Yes. So I think um, your book is extremely um, original in terms of uh, its comparative breadth and focus, right? Ireland, France, but it's actually Alsace-Lorraine. So it's also Germany. It's yep. the Italian-Austrian borderland. So obviously you have to talk about Yugoslavia, you talk about Austria, and you talk about Italy. So... Could we just go through uh, what happens at these places during the long First World War? Yeah, so that, so let's start with, we'll just, I guess, start from the top and go down. Uh, I, I like the idea of starting with Ireland because it often is so left to the periphery when people talk about both the war itself and its aftermath. So when the war starts, um, Ireland as an, as an island, the whole thing, um, is entirely within the United Kingdom. Over the course of the war, we get what's called the Irish, um, uh, the Easter Rising in 1916, uh, where you have uh, a group of, of nationalists who are revolting in, in an attempt to get Irish independence, while simultaneously you have another group of, of kind of more moderate nationalists who are actually encouraging men to sign up to fight you know, for Britain in the trenches in the hope that if they sacrifice that way, then Britain will allow them to have a version of home rule in the aftermath of the war. So there are these very competing ideas of nationalism. What ends up happening um, in the aftermath of the war is that uh, right before the war starts, there has there was a, a home rule bill, something that would allow Ireland to have a pretty significant measure of, of self-government um, that gets shelled right as the war breaks out, because that's just too many things at once. Um, and the tensions over the course of the war between the various different camps in Ireland, uh, mostly between uh, what we now know as Northern Ireland, which is generally considered to be majority Protestant, um, and what is currently the Republic of Ireland, generally uh, majority Catholic, Roman Catholic. Um, in the aftermath of the war, you have um, essentially two civil wars, one between Irish nationalists and the British, in which we're talking about it's still a single state, um, uh, and then eventually uh, a civil war actually between the Irish themselves. And as this happens, you, we start to see the creation of Northern Ireland um, essentially in 1921. So that's when you start to get the, the border between what we now think of as the Republic, um, which then was called the Irish Free State, and Northern Ireland. Um, but as that happened, there was this agreement between all these parties, essentially these three governments, that they understood that there were significant minority populations Catholics and Protestants on either side of that border. That border was just based on the counties. That's just that was the way it broke down. Um, and there was an argument that that didn't make a whole lot of sense. And the most sensible thing would be to come up with a very technical, sophisticated commission that would figure out how to draw a better boundary, a boundary that would have fewer minorities on either side. And this is called the Irish Boundary Commission, um, and it. Uh, basically tries to draw this new map and, and it fails. It fails by 1926 because each side realizes they're not going to get the whole thing that they want. Um, 
and they leave the boundary where it is, and this is still the boundary that we have during the Troubles and the boundary today. Uh, of course, the, the irony being that uh, with Brexit, we're not talking about the idea of a hard Irish border again. So that's a, a very technical kind of version where you see a lot of different contestations between people of who gets to count and whose voice gets to count in front of this commission about um, who gets to move this line, should it move at all. So that's one version um, in Ireland. The second is in Alsace-Lorraine, uh, which uh, by the time the war starts is part of Germany. Uh, because it had been lost during the, the Franco-Prussian War, and Alsace um, is, is obviously this very kind of specific regional place. It had been part of France for a very long time. It had been part of Germany. Most of the population speaks uh, a dialect of German called Alsatian. It's very unique. Um, it goes, uh, many of the front lines of the war run through Alsace, uh, and it is occupied by both sides over the course of the war, which gets very ugly. In the immediate aftermath of the war, the French government takes it back. It's not even on the table that this is going to be, you know, a plebiscite or, or anything like this. It's one of Wilson's 14 points, actually, that it be returned to France. Uh, but in the aftermath of the war, the French decide that they're very concerned that the Germans have, have essentially imported a lot of German people into this area. Um, and they want to figure out how to make sure that it's only populated by real French people. Um, but it's a little bit more complicated than just an ethnic argument. So they start to, to go through a system which they're trying to figure out who, who is where when, who has how many grandparents of, of various nationality. Um, but instead of just sending back people who speak German or sound German, they come up with the, what they call these uh, appellation or purge commissions, where they essentially have tribunals of, of neighbors against neighbors trying to figure out who has German politics and who has French politics. And they deport a lot of these people back across the Rhine, which is ironic since many of them had only ever lived in Alsace. Um, and for the Alsatians whom they couldn't deport back across the Rhine, they actually send many of them to the, they call the interior of France, where hopefully they can be re-educated to be properly French. Um, and in Italy, um, which is probably the kind of, uh, potentially the ugliest version of this population engineering, Italy gains territory from, from the Austro-Hungarian Empire in two different, very different places. Um, one is in uh, the South Tyrol, uh, which is kind of up against the mountains, and it's a very—it's almost entirely German. Uh, and the other is along the Adriatic coastline, uh, much of which is is actually now Croatia, um, kind of opposite from the, the right-hand side of the boot, uh, in other words. But it's actually heavily populated by uh, what were then considered uh, Yugoslavs, South Slavs. Uh, and that, to many Italian nationalists, is supposed to be the completion of the, you know, the 19th century Sorgimento, that they're going to do complete, you know, the, a unified Italy, uh, except many of their soldiers are very disappointed to realize when they get there that these people don't speak any Italian, and they're really not quite happy to see them. Uh, and that, um, that reintegration, on one hand, is very interesting because immediately the, the liberal Italian government essentially turns these into new areas of Italy. And they get to vote in the 1921 elections and, and everything like this, Yet simultaneously, um, rising Italian fascism is extremely disciplined. These you know, very clear national minorities, they harass people at the polls. They're trying to abuse them. They're, they're physically harming them. They're taking their, their voting tickets. Uh, and you know, obviously, Italy um, falls to fascism you know, very quickly thereafter um, in the early 1920s. So those are these kind of three areas in which we're seeing this argument that we need to, we need to protect democracy by minimizing these minorities. And you see a variety of very different methodologies by which to do that. Great. It's, it's very interesting. I was just wondering, uh, do you think that democracy sort of lost its innocence during the First World War? 
to what extent are these projects all the results of the war, right? And the war, of course, is the result of mutual interactions between the central powers and the Entente, right? So can we say that ultimately these liberal democracies and the allies in general end up adopting very similar policies that the German military does in Oberost mm -hmm. or, or even in Alsace-Lorraine? So I, I find this really interesting because I think, you know, on one hand we can say these are problems with, with democracy, um, but on the other hand I'm a little bit skeptical of that because I think that at least in, in this book, that democracy comes out more as a methodology than as an ideology. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, it's a governing tactic, but there can be a lot of different kinds of ideas behind democracy. Uh, honestly, this is this is the point of Michael Mann's book, you know, the, the Dark Side of Democracy. Uh, I think that the question here is really you know, this idea of basing democracy on liberalism and on nationalism, that's the problem. And I, and I hope that throughout the book that the reader comes away with the, the idea that the, the larger problem here is probably the nationalism side. Mm -hmm. um, that, in other words, just the idea of democracy itself won't protect you. And I think uh, from a kind of a late 20, 20th century perspective and 21st century perspective, there's this argument that democracy itself, the methodology, the idea of one, one person, one vote, uh, is going to solve the problem. Uh, but that can still lead to these kind of mob-based politics. It's, uh, you know, the argument about protecting individuals, you know, the, the basis of liberalism, I think it's liberalism actually that comes out a little bit more tarnished out of this than democracy itself. Not because there's necessarily, I mean, there are obviously many flaws to it, but um, not because it was fundamentally flawed, but because it turns out that when faced with kind of aggressive fears, um, and very seductive ideas of nationalism that it didn't hold up as well as everyone thought it would. Right. Um, and you talk about France, right? You know, France mm -hmm. ends up deporting 100,000 Germans, but at the same time, based on intermarriages, it allows some Germans who were married to local native Alsatians mm -hmm. to stay, right? So in that sense, it's, can we call this an ethnic cleansing? I know you use population transfers, in the mm -hmm. book, right? But if we think of the work of Tarazara or Laird Boswell, mm -hmm. they use the word ethnic cleansing. And I was just wondering whether there's a difference of perspective between protecting democracy from dissent, your new book and previous scholarship, or or what is it that you know that this book tells us differently? So I am I obviously I have enormous respect for Tarazara. Um, I think I have a slightly different perspective because uh, I'm resistant to the, the ethnic cleansing terminology simply because I think that in these particular instances, even, even in, in France, it's a little bit more complicated than a purely ethnic argument. And that's actually what I think is, is so interesting. Uh, I think the place where you come closest to an ethnic argument is actually in Italy. Um, and it's an ethnic argument mostly from the, the fascist side. Um, but let's, let's look at, at France and Alsace, for example, because this is where I, I find it most curious. Um, the French have a system when they first move back into Alsace-Lorraine where they start to give out identity cards. Um, and it is obviously a highly problematic system. They give out identity cards ranked A through D, A being most preferable and D being least preferable, basically based on the number of French grandparents you have. Obviously, this is starting to make all of us nervous at this point. Mm -hmm. um, but it would have been really easy to deport people based on their identity cards. 
but what they do is they set up this extensive, expensive, very you know, long-running set of, of these triage commissions, these purge commissions, in order to go one level deeper, which is to say, okay, I want to look at the people who have certain um, of these cards, but I want to figure out what their politics are. And so when you go down those lists, which I know, I know we've both seen in the archive, and they have people's names and they have the charges they've been brought up on. And, and most of them aren't for, they're not for being a German. They're for being interested in pan-Germanism. They're for aiding the Germans during the war. They're for tipping off German soldiers uh, as some of these um, towns go back and forth. Uh, and so that's what I, I think is kind of the, the secondary argument for the French, because the French, they, they, they set their own rules. Like, you know, they, they set their own rules in Alsace. You know, they, they're dictating many of these kind of specific clauses about the annexation in the Versailles Treaty. But once they set them, they play by them. You mentioned um, these German men married to Alsatian women. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they're called the expulsés uh, um, the the inoperable expulsions. Uh, one of the interesting things about the Versailles Treaty is that it's it's weirdly gender neutral in this sense. In this period, what usually happens when a woman got married is that she would assume the citizenship of her husband. The Versailles Treaty actually allows it to go both ways. That meant that you could have German women, German men, excuse me, married to Alsatian women, um, who by um, virtue of the Versailles Treaty have now become French, and that means that these men are now legally French. Mm-hmm. And many of them had had seriously pro-German politics. And you can see in some of these documents, you see, you know, one administrator writing to another saying, you know, we'd really like to get rid of this one, but legally we could only send him over for two weeks and it's simply not worth it. So please, you have to stop this. You must stop this now. We will not do any more of this. Uh, and that's where I think the kind of the argument about ethnic cleansing really falls down in Alsace because they've occupied the place. It would be very easy for them to do whatever they want, but they choose not to because they still have this very French Republican idea that you can, that you can become French or, or an example, there's an, uh, an example of these two, uh, a mother and two girls. The mother was German. The husband had been Alsatian, but he had died. And you have these administrators saying, well, we would like to deport the mother, but she would take the girls. But we think the girls can become French, that we can educate them to be French. Um, and they're half French. So we would rather they stay here instead of just deporting them simply because they're half German. So that's where I think it's, it's a little bit more complicated. Obviously, the, the, the Irish question, uh, there's kind of a long-running question in Irish historiography about this. You know, religion and ethnicity are not necessarily the same. You know, this, it's sectarianism. Um, but these people are incredibly similar to one another. Um, I think where you have the, the closest to to an ethnic match is in Italy, where you have fascists kind of intentionally attacking Slovenes and Germans and so on. Um, but it's not this perfect ethnic cleansing match. It's more related to these ideas of who can participate in this system in a way that's not perfectly aligned with their minority group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and let's also talk about the results, right? Because obviously your book and also my project stops in the mid 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, this has a much longer shadow, right? In Alsace, yep. many of the expulsés come back in 1940 and uh, just become the local Nazis, right? Um, yeah. And, uh, and there, yes, and there's the um, uh, the trial in Bordeaux in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. The Orador trial. Sure, sure, uh, sure, sure. Where you had the, there, there had been a group of, of Alsatian men who, who claimed that they had been co-opted into the SS 
and were involved in the, the massacre of civilians in Orador elsewhere in France, where essentially the entire town was burned to the ground and, and people were locked in the buildings. Uh, and they, they were tried in Bordeaux in the 1950s. Um, and you know, their argument is that you know, they, they called themselves the Malcolm despite us. You know, we didn't mean to. Uh, we were just co-opted. So there's there is a very long-running tension, and obviously, you know, when, when we go to Alsace today, you, you do not you hear German tourists, you do not hear German, you hear almost no Alsatian. Uh, you, the education is entirely in France, so it has cast a very long shadow there. Sure, and also by the mid 1920s, they completely managed to uh, alienate a population that was in yes. 1918 extremely favorable to France because after four mm-hmm. years of German essentially military dictatorship, they were happy whatever they could get from the French. But by 1919, essentially there is a malaise, right? Both from yes. the working class movement, people lose their jobs. Uh, there is a huge economic crisis because many of the Alsatian cities, such as Strasbourg and Metz, one third of the population is German, right? And all those people mm-hmm. are gone. Uh, there are no consumers um, to buy products. Uh, there is a series of violation of property rights. So all the mm-hmm. German private property is expropriated. So just playing the devil's advocate here, uh, can we say that actually the limits of French republicanism were very clear in Alsace-Lorraine? That is, France did not really apply its universalist logic. I mean, clearly you gave examples that eventually many of the native Alsatians and some Germans could become French, right? But this wasn't the case right off the bat in 1918 when the population was just not handled universally, right? Um, (coughs) Yes, and that's why there's this ironic comparison in this book between um, what the Italians are doing and what the French are doing. So uh, there is a a, a deep slowness to what the French are doing. So on one hand, they will never, they're never willing to call the Alsatians a minority. They won't use that language. Um, they want to talk about, about them as you know, kind of French or else. Yet at the same time, you know, after the, the military occupation ends you know, quite quickly, but then they, they govern the whole thing, you know, as, as you all know, as a special administrative unit, well into the 1920s, because they're just not quite convinced, you know, so it's, it's civilian rule, but it's not part of the full French state. It's not part of the full French Republic. Uh, what the Italians do is kind of is the opposite, which is to say, you know, well, uh, well, we just got these things yesterday and you know, you're going into the next election, um, which on one hand, see, you know, on the on the face of that policy seems like that that seems to make the most sense in terms of you know, liberalism's own um, um, philosophy. Well, it's here. Everyone can vote. Everyone gets their say and so on. Um, it collapses rather quickly for the Italians. Um, I mean, I think people have always uh, made the case about French, uh, about the, about France, you know, how many generations does my family need to be here um, before mm-hmm. I'm French? Uh, I, you see that that was a case, obviously, with the Italian migrants into, into parts of France in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's obviously very much in the news today with arguments about um, Muslim minorities from from previous French colonies in France now. So that too has cast a very long shadow. Great. Um, No, it's all all very interesting. I just wanted to ask you, obviously you undertook this really monumental comparative study. Did you have any books or research or even novels that inspired you as you were writing the dissertation and then the book? That's so... Yes, but not that we're necessarily in the same kind of format. Mm-hmm. I would pick things from from a variety of different places. I think um, novels were actually really interesting because it was a 
a place in which you could see some of these tensions of individuals who felt very much that they were part of multiple worlds and they didn't know where they were supposed to belong. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was what was, what interested me in this kind of idea of transnational history to begin with. And it was why I was so interested in writing in writing something that was not a kind of a traditional um, single country focused or even single population focused book. Um, one of my favorites, which I read a very long time ago, and, and that is Sebastian Barry's novel called A Long, Long Way. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a beautiful writer. He's Irish. Um, and it is about an Irish soldier in 1916 who's from Dublin. And he's he joins up to go fight in the war. Um, and yet he, in, in the narrative of this book, he ends up being on leave um, during the Easter Rising. And so he, he's an Irishman, but he's in British uniform. And his father had been a police officer. Uh, and, and obviously the nationalists turn on these people. They target these people uh, very intensively. Uh, and you know, it's a story with a sad ending. But the, the tensions within him I found so fascinating. And actually I ended up kind of angling into this almost through Ireland, um, which is, is ironic in the sense that Irish historiographies is very kind of split in terms of Republican historiography, nationalist historiography versus um, unionist. So that was really kind of where that started. Um, so yes, I, I, as a historian, I am still uh, really believe in using literary fiction uh, to help us as sources, um, obviously certainly that are you know, contemporary relevant. This book is know, 15 years old, maybe. Um, but they help you think differently about people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and people definitely come to the fore in your novel. And just closing, you know, uh, can I ask you about your next project? If you have any ideas, are you going to take this further? Or which are the ideas that connect um, to your current project? So my, I am currently, I, I have two more ideas. One I'm working on currently. Um, it's very much set in the same um, period, this idea. I, I'm, I, I very much consider myself a First World War historian, but I, as you've noticed, kind of work on the very tail end of it and use it to this, and, and kind of the, the Bruno Caban argument that you know, the war doesn't, doesn't end that year, uh, on November 11, 1918. Uh, so my new book is actually about how, for ordinary people, uh, the cataclysm of the war starts to change ideas about what we now call human rights um, against the backdrop of kind of a secularizing notion of salvation during the 1920s. So I think what starts to happen is that um, people, there's an enormous literature on how people react in in technical religious terms uh, to the war. Um, But I also think that what starts to happen is that Uh, through the disillusionment of the war that many people start to look for an attempt to build kind of a new heaven on earth instead of being willing to wait for the classical idea of salvation in the afterlife. Um, And and I think that through that secularization of the idea of salvation is where we start to get some of the ideas about what we now call human rights and human rights-based language in the 20s. So I'm, I'm not making a claim that's the same thing as the you know, UN's Universal Declaration of 1948 or anything like that. But I think it's a really interesting antecedent about how ordinary people start to think about their lives differently. 
that's really fascinating, especially that we know that religiosity just is on the rise during the First mm-hmm. World War, both in the home front and on the war front. That's, um, that's really great. So Shannon Morgan, her book Protecting Democracy from Dissent, Population Engineering in Western Europe, published in 2018 by Rutledge. Thank you so much for the conversation, Shannon, and I hope we can continue someday. Thank you.